Hi folks, welcome to the Happy Saver podcast. Your friends might not want to talk about their journey with money, but I sure do. I'm Ruth and I'm a blogger on personal finance in New Zealand and in this podcast series I tell the stories of Kiwis and their experiences with the money in their lives. Well, I can't quite believe it, but this is the 12th and last episode in my second series of Money Journeys with other happy savers throughout New Zealand. And I'm so grateful to everyone who took the time to speak with me and share a lot of private information with all of us. It's a pretty bold move, but I know from the feedback I received that this information is actually proving invaluable to others as people have really enjoyed not just hearing about other people in their journey they're on, but the finer details like the power provider or the insurer or the KiwiSaver or the investment fund that they are using to get ahead. But for me, it's pretty hard work bringing it all together. Don't get me wrong, I do love it. But after today, I'm going to take a bit of a break and I'll embark on a new series in a couple of months' time. Maybe sooner, we'll see how we go. But before I sign off, I'm really excited to share the story of Alison and Tom, a family with four children, a tight budget and a house build on the cards. But boy, do they make it work. Now, before I jump into it, let's hear a quick word from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Superlife's My Future Fund. We all want the best for our kids and this fund is designed to help you help them save for their future. This fund is flexible so that anyone can save for a child because My Future Fund is not just for parents. More than one person can save for the same child at the same time, such as grandparents, other relatives, godparents and friends. It is an ideal vehicle to receive cash presents for birthdays or the holiday season. This is truly the gift that keeps on giving. Superlife's fees are amongst the lowest in the market and there are a broad range of investment options to choose from including age steps which sets the child's allocation to growth assets based on their age. Visit superlife.co.nz and follow the quick link invest for children to find out more. And just so you know Superlife is managed by SmartShares and you can download a copy of the product disclosure statement at superlife.co.nz for more information. This couple live in the Hawke's Bay, which is a stunning region on the east coast of the North Island in New Zealand, and Alison and Tom are actually not their real names, but Alison and Tom are the names of two friends of mine, both of whom are fabulous people, so I thought that they would be fitting aliases for these two. Now, Alison and I connected when I put the word out asking to speak to someone with a larger family who were willing to share their journey with money in New Zealand. Last week I spoke to a family of five and today I'm going to go one step further because Alison and her husband Tom, they have four children, a three-year-old, twins who are one and a half and a brand spanking new baby. Like so new that when we spoke at the start of July, we timed our chat around the birth. Now I know that when I had my daughter, I barely found time to actually finish a sentence and make it understandable. So to say that Alison had my full attention from the get-go because she was so composed and switched on is an understatement. And it is Alison who is all over the financial plans of this family of six, and it started with where they choose to call home. Living in the Hawke's Bay was a strategic decision, as she says that a town with a population of about 100,000 in the general area is about the sweet spot. And with this size, you have enough of a mix of people, of housing, of businesses and infrastructure to be able to live a really comfortable life. And that statement there, it kind of sets the scene really for our chat. 
Alison trained and worked as an engineer slash trader slash analyst and from my experience anyone with engineer in their title is generally a lover of spreadsheets and the finer details and this is Alison for sure. She worked in the energy industry for a large um, state-owned enterprise both in the engineering side and also in a finance role but currently she is working as a full-time mum looking after four little kids. So it's her husband Tom who heads out the door each day to work as an electrical engineer working in project management. In 2009, Alison's first job after she finished her studies was in Wellington. Now, after being a broke student for so many years, she spent the first six months on a real income spending it all. Until that is, she googled how to save money and she came upon a website called Simple Savings and I'm going to link to that in my show notes. Now Alison told me that at that time it had a really active forum and she learned a lot about personal finance from it and she got introduced to Canadian blogger Mr Money Mustache and his thoughts on money. She had a good income and interacting with the website where she could talk freely about money, it made her quit her spending and instead become quite ambitious to get ahead and really start to get her financial foot in the door. Alison started to look for a home that she could buy in Wellington and she realised that she could get a far nicer whare for her money back home in the Hawke's Bay, so at the age of 26 that is exactly what she did and she paid $330,000 for a five-year-old two-bedroom townhouse on a 300-square-metre section, and she made the strategic decision to borrow much less than the bank was actually offering, because she did not want to be crushed by a mortgage. Now, she contemplated getting flatmates in to help her with this mortgage, but after many years of sharing with others, she was pretty much over it, so she settled into it by herself and began to knuckle down on paying it off because she had done a few calculations and worked out that she could have it fully paid off by the time she was 34 if she kept being intentional about it. Now, after talking to a lot of people and drawing on my own psychology degree, I've worked out that a lot of people's attitude to money, it's innate, but I think more of it comes from their upbringing and how they saw the money being handled in their own home. So I wondered, what was it like for Alison growing up? Well, she told me that her parents have always been relatively frugal and they raised her with really good money habits. Actually, her dad worked with a budget advice service for a bit just to help out others. So he was in a very good position to set her on the right path. And that started from her very first paper run, where 20% of the money she earned went straight into a savings account. Now, she remembers that at one point, when her and her siblings were still at home, her older brother, he wanted to put a term deposit together. And he worked out that if he had the really big sum of $10,000, he could get a far better rate of return than if he had just put in a smaller amount. So the three siblings, they pulled all of their money together and they invested it. And she recalls that they got something like a 9% return. And when it matured, they each got their portion back plus 9%. A 9% term deposit? Now, those were the days. Now, it was this practical education with money that meant that by the time she had finished school and decided to go and do an OE for a year, that she actually financed it through money she had earned and saved throughout high school. So apart from six months of splurging when she got her first proper job, and who can blame her after years spent eating two-minute noodles, she just began to build on the good money foundations that she had learned as a kid. But now she had some new information in her toolkit by way of Mr Money Mustache and that Simple Savings blog. And she was working in her job and a third of the way into paying off her mortgage and hitting all of her goals and targets when she met Tom and the math of the situation changed. They met through work when she was in her 30s and he was in his 50s. 
he had, as it turns out, incorrectly assumed that he was going to be a bachelor for life. While she was in house paying off mode, he was in his planning for retirement mode. He was not planning for a wife and a young family, but Cupid had other plans for him and his retirement now included not just himself, but five other people. Now, Tom had actually owned properties over the years, but when he and Alison met, he had none, having sold up and invested his money instead. So, logically, Tom moved into Alison's townhouse and they have been together for six years now. And I wondered what it was like when they both met. Were they able to discuss their finances? She was well set up, but what would happen if Tom was living on his credit cards and was terrible with money? How would that play out? She said that an open and honest conversation about money actually cropped up pretty early on, and at that point, if he had have been bad with money, it would have given her great pause for thought because she didn't want to walk into a situation where someone else could undermine all of her hard work. But thankfully, both of them are frugal by choice, not by necessity, and both of them were very good with money. Now, Tom has just had the benefit of time on his side where he has saved and let compound interest do the work. So they pretty quickly realised that they were very alike. So they combined their finances and he is more than happy for her to look after that side of their life now. She likes the detail and to hunt down good deals. He's not so interested in that. So their setup works well for the whole family. She said that as well as being able to discuss money with Tom, she is lucky that she has two good friends who also aim not to spend all the money they make and together they have some really frank discussions, which is absolutely awesome. Now together, Alison and Tom, they cleared the mortgage on Alison's townhouse and they continue to save and invest. They sold it three years ago and they moved to a seven hectare property in the same area. Oh, and they also got married and had four children. Now, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry, but in a good way for this couple, and such a lot has happened in a relatively short space of time. Prior to having their first child, she left work for a six-month mini-retirement, which with the house paid off and money invested, she was able to, in her words, do nothing in particular for the very first time in my life. And she said that taking the sabbatical was difficult to explain to others and it confused some people, but she just needed a break. And before long, she found the time well used up with planning a wedding, getting pregnant and reading a lot of books. She said she also had a great social life. She planned a holiday and generally did all those things that get so crowded out by working full time. Now, personally speaking, my husband and I, we've done this several times throughout our working lives, and it's incredibly refreshing to be able to just stop for a while and spend a decent length of time, like several months, just doing whatever you feel like doing. But now for Alison, with four children, the break from work is permanent, and she has been out of the paid workforce for five years now. But with four very young kids, my guess is that she has never worked so hard in her life. And those kids had better be lovable to make up for the pay, which is terrible for stay-at-home parents. And now big plans are afoot again as they subdivide the seven-hectare property that they paid $800,000 cash for. Are they going to subdivide that into three lots? They are in the planning stages of building a new home for themselves, having her parents move on site and build a home for themselves, and then finally selling off the original 1970s home that they are currently living in. Now currently they are still debt free because when they purchased this property, they knew that they wanted to do it without borrowing, which they almost achieved. They did have to take out lending for just one week to change from the townhouse to this bigger property. It took them a long time to find this property because they wanted it to be rural, but walking distance to a primary school and, of course, within their budget, so they could do it without lending. But their patience, it paid off, and they said they have found the perfect place. 
The previous owners actually lived on the property for 75 years and this whānau is definitely settling in for the long haul too. With two engineers in control of this subdivision and build, they are quietly confident that they will cover the $600,000 of budget that they have set to complete this project, like I say, without lending. Now the cost of the new build, plus all of the site development, putting in driveways and bringing power and water to site, etc., that's going to be covered by the sale of their existing home, but they are keeping almost $400,000 of cash close by in shares and term deposits while they own both homes. Now this is a really difficult time to manage money because she does not want to lock up money that they will need to pay big bills with, but... If there is any way that she can make some interest off it, then she really wants to do that too. So she is using her spreadsheet to keep track of things and is always looking at different term deposit rates when one has um, hit maturity. Because her parents are building as well, they are able to split the infrastructure costs involved in developing the site. Well, I worked in the building industry long enough to pick up from our conversation that they understand the process and the costs involved. And I think that even if something unexpected does come up, which it inevitably will, they will have a contingency plan in place to cover it, I'm sure. And because Alison has an eye for details and likes planning, it seems unlikely that this will become like one of those Grand Designs episodes where the costs blow out. Now, I never once heard her utter the words forever home as an excuse for unnecessary upspecking. And if I gave them $10,000 right now, what would they do with that money? Well, you guessed it. Although Alison said it would not be the best financial move, they would put that money into the new house fund for now, and that would go a fraction of the way towards bringing power and water up to the site. She said that there are just so many specialists involved in the build process that it would be gobbled up in an instant. Now, with two engineers in the household, even with just one of them working, you might assume a very high salary. Well, Alison is making no income. They do now receive a quite small working for families allowance, uh, and Tom makes between eighty and ninety thousand dollars per year, of which they save half. Yep, you heard me correctly, half. So this family of six is living on forty to forty-five thousand dollars per year, and are continuing to add to their investments that are providing a passive income from dividends from the shares that they own. And I'm pretty impressed by that. So how on earth can they achieve that? Was my very next question. Well, for them, controlling lifestyle creep is a really big part of it. Alison told me that one thing they are very conscious of as a family is the advertising that they allow into their lives, both the overt and the insidious. So, for example, she does not read any glossy magazines because they are designed to make her want items that she didn't know she ever needed. Uh, They don't own a TV, but they do have Netflix, which may seem counterintuitive to pay for a service when you can get TV for free. But part of the reason they do it is to limit the amount of advertising that they are all exposed to. Advertising, she said, is designed to make us feel disconnected with what we have, and she wouldn't allow a real friend to do that, so why would she allow an electronic friend to do it? For the same reason, she avoids buying endless stuff for her children, like having character items for the children, such as toothbrushes, school bags, etc. You know, the ones with cartoons, Spongebob on them and things like that. Now, these are generally sold at a premium price and they're all marketing devices and she simply is not interested in paying to have someone market to her children. Marketers are, after all, masters of making children beg their parents for items and that's just not a dynamic she is interested in creating within her own family. She said that they are certainly not Luddites and her children do naturally learn about these characters from their friends, but she doesn't need to add to it. 
And the other reason that she avoids character items is that she avoids items wherever possible with designed obsolescence. And she is loath to replace something that still works. And she used the example of buying her daughter a Paw Patrol duvet cover. Well, she won't still want that duvet cover four years from now, but if um, Alison opts for a classic duvet cover, it will still be perfectly functional for years to come. Now, that desire to avoid obsolescence is also coming from an environmental perspective, which is the same reason she does not buy cheap, rubbishy toys for her kids. But like many of the things they do, it also happens to be a frugal choice. And she told me that last Christmas, uh, it was a bit of an eye-opener for her as their older girl was about two and a half years old and it was the very first time that she was old enough to understand about Christmas and presents. And she said that they were chatting a few days before Christmas and she realised that her daughter's expectation of Christmas was that each family member would receive just one present. She was not sure where she got that idea from and she did get a few more presents than just one, but it really brought home to Alison the fact that our children's desires are often actually very simple and hopefully we can maintain that as they get older. She said that living on $45,000 per year still allows for local holidays and the occasional nice dinner and they don't feel like they are living on the bones of their asses at all. She keeps a detailed budget spreadsheet to track where every dollar is going and that it works really smoothly. So I wondered what her three main financial habits are, the things that she just automatically does week in and week out. Well, Alison said she tries to approach family finance the same way as running a business and she downloads transactions once a month and codes them against different parts of her budget. I'm liking the way she's talking here. Now, she does not use a budget to constrain spending, but just to make sure that they are roughly on the right track. And she uses it a lot for forecasting so that they have a grasp on what they spend. It's relatively detailed and she can, for example, see the cost of nappies or how the food budget increases as the family's eating habits evolve, for example. And she considers the price of everything that they purchase and avoids shopping on the spur of the moment. And she shops from a list and keeps adding to it as things pop up. But many items tend to stay on the list for a long time. And after a while, she may even realize that she has survived without them. So she probably does not need it anyway and will cross it off her list. She shops online, which makes life easier because getting four very young children to the supermarket and back can take more time and hassle than it's worth. So buying groceries online, for example, is a good use of her time. Plus, of course, you can look in the pantry to double check what you do and don't need uh, while you are completing your online order. And buying less also means less stuff to tidy up. And Alison hates cleaning and tidying. Plus, she does not want her children growing up thinking that they can have anything and everything that they want. So I couldn't help but ask, um, what is the food budget for a family of six? On average, they spend about $180 per week and all of their cooking is done from scratch using very few pre-made items. The kids all eat normal food, she told me, by which she means she doesn't buy any kid-specific products like those little teeny jars of mash that you can buy. They have their own cows and sheep, and once they are reared and home-killed, they pay about $6 a kilo all up, and this includes prime cuts that she would not normally buy if she was shopping for meat at the supermarket. She has conceded to getting groceries delivered, like I just mentioned, uh, which she said restricts her to countdown. Uh, when she formally went to pack and save. And by doing this, she thinks it probably adds an additional 10 to $20 to their shop. But it's a frugality versus time trade-off and her use of time wins out for sure. When she has more time, she will go back to doing it by herself. And currently there are extra costs, which they have to put up with, but will get rid of uh, whenever she can. 
Now they have three kids in full-time nappies and one in nighttime ones, and she has spent $600 so far this year. She did use reusable nappies and breastfeeding with her first, but then their twins came along and something had to give, and they moved to nappies and formula. And once again, this is where practicality meets frugality. She has always run detailed spreadsheets and she remembers that when she was explaining it to the person at the bank when she got her first mortgage, they actually told her (laughs) to go out and get a life. Now, you would think that they might have congratulated her on taking her finances so seriously, but no. She said that neither herself or Tom are natural spenders and both of them in their working lives made good money and just didn't feel the pressure to spend it. So naturally, it just started to build up and it was the obvious choice to find a place to save it where it could earn an income for them. Now time for some nuts and bolts. Prior to owning her first home, Alison said she used to have tons of bank accounts for budget categories, but when she got her mortgage, it was a revolving credit one. That is one bank account where all of her expenses and income came and went from. So she moved on to using the spreadsheet system that she still uses today to divide up her expenses and her income instead. And today they have just one FPOS account a credit card that they use for most things and of course they pay it off in full each month. Then they have an on-call savings account and some shorter length term deposits. As I've already mentioned, they currently have most of their cash on hand because they are doing work on the property and really big bills are coming in for earthworks and the like and they need cash handy to cover these and for the upcoming house build. And because they have cash close by, they don't have a specific amount set aside for an emergency account as such. And when they took out the one-week mortgage as they changed properties, she has still kept that mortgage facility in place should they ever need it. Because once you leave the workforce, it can be really hard to borrow. So she just wanted to keep that option there and to keep it open. She pays no monthly fee for that facility and it just sits there unused in the background. Now they do have shares in both Meridian and Mercury Energy, both of which have done quite well over the years and these were purchased when the government sold off some of its SOEs a number of years back. For her 21st birthday she was given $500 of Guinness Peat Group which then proceeded to lose three quarters of their value over the next five years. At one point there was an offer that you could sell and not incur any fees and she ended up with $120. So for her, it was a good real-life lesson in why buying individual shares is just not for her. And as a general rule, she does not like individual shares and would prefer to be invested in index funds, which they don't have any of at the moment. But once the build is complete and the original house is sold, uh, they will be reinvesting all the remaining money, which should be a pretty substantial chunk, and will then just be continuing to grow their investment pot. Now Tom on the other hand he likes the research side of looking into different companies and buying individual shares in them and he dabbles a bit with this but both of them are in agreement that much of the research around investments says it's not really the best way forward due to the really high level of risk and the inability for novice investors to do well over a long period of time. She said that any share buying he does is not even listed on her spreadsheet, it's his hobby and it just doesn't factor into their finances at all. Both of them are in KiwiSaver and she is with ANZ One Answer, who she joined up with uh, because that was who her employer was using way back when KiwiSaver started. And only their oldest child has KiwiSaver and they are with the ASB and they did receive the $1,000 kickstart from the government, which has since been scrapped. Alison is contemplating putting $1,000 into equivalent funds for the other three kids, but she's not a big believer in providing for her children and that when the day comes for them to leave home, they can actually fend for themselves using the education they've received while growing up. 
and her thoughts on this are that providing monetary support may make them worse off and we talked about how some parents are providing a mortgage deposit for their grown children which in her view potentially makes them really over mortgaged or over leveraged. Now if a bank will only lend 80% and parents step in with the other 20% then that actually makes the child 100% financed which is not a position anyone should be in and all the child has learned to do is to borrow not create a savings habit. So they will instead be teaching their kids about money like her parents taught her and she thinks that getting into housing is still very doable on professional incomes. But what city you choose to live in, what car you drive, how many holidays you have and what you buy, well all of these are fundamental decisions that make a really big difference to your financial life and it surprises her just how many people have good incomes but nothing to show for it and it all comes back to the choices they make. So make your decisions carefully is her advice because they each have long-term consequences. Now on the subject of cars, growing up her parents always drove older cars and that's the same for Alison and Tom and she sees now that her parents were making the frugal choice. Today this family of six have a small car and a big car, both fit for purpose. The small car is a 1993 Toyota Corolla that she bought off her parents in 2005 when she was at university. And then her and Tom, they bought a 2007 El Grand, is it El Grand or El Grande, never sure, uh, when they were expecting twins. And it is big enough to ferry everyone around in. So there's no flashiness here with their cars, just two good vehicles that are reliable and they are perfect for what they need them to do. And I alluded to it earlier, do they get a holiday? Well, yes, they do. They have a family rule that they don't go more than two hours from home because they have too many kids and it's too hard to organise plus too darn expensive even with the most basic of accommodation. So one holiday they had prior to the arrival of their fourth child was in a hired cottage on a farm just an hour away from home and it gave them all the benefits of getting away without all the stress. She said they also went to Taupo a few months ago and hired a unit in a camping ground which was great but accommodation in New Zealand for a family is actually becoming or has already become really expensive. Now once the kids are bigger, they do want to get into camping or caravanning, but for now the thought of four kids potentially escaping from the tent is just not a good thought. Next I asked, what is Alison's money elevator pitch or a sentence that would sum up her approach to money? Well she said that for them money is about giving them options in life, but on its own it has no intrinsic value. The sole purpose of it is the things that it allows them to do. There is no point in amassing money for its own sake, it is made to be used. Now being a stay-at-home mum, it's really important to her and her family and being frugal with their money, it allows her to do that. And they have also used the money they have accumulated to help others in their times of need as well, like when a family member needed a bridging loan to enable her to move house. And what would be Alison's biggest financial triumph to date? Well, she is not the first wife or husband for that matter to say this, but tongue-in-cheek she said it was marrying her husband, not that she chose him for his money. But the fact is that they are such a good fit together and a really good team. And she said her financial triumphs are not really one-off things, they're just bits and pieces that have added up over time. For example, she didn't support the sale of the SOEs that the government sold off, but they were going to be sold anyway, so she thought she should be in on it and the shares have done well for them as they put in about $40,000 and they are now worth about $80,000. So basically, steady, good choices have set them on the right path. So the opposite of a financial triumph is a financial flop and was there one that she was willing to admit to? Well when they bought their 7 hectare property they, like many hobby farmers brand spanking new to farming, had plans to run it as a small farm. 
They bought cows and they paid to have them inseminated, which resulted in zero calves. And she said that they could have bought four cows for the same price. She said that they have learned a lot about farming from YouTube, that's for sure. Now, because of their visions of making money off the land, they set it up as a business and they were able to claim back GST, which they received as a lump sum, which was great at the time, but they realised that small farming was not going to work as a business. So they actually deregistered themselves and had to pay that GST back. But during the time that had passed, the property had gone up a lot in value and they actually ended up paying $25,000 more in GST. Ouch, that's got to hurt. Now, they had an accountant who suggested it, but in hindsight, a more specialised tax accountant may have suggested otherwise. They always knew that they would have to pay it back when they sold the property and had cash, but they did not envisage that they would want to deregister it. And at that time, they didn't have the cash just sitting there, so it was a big lesson to learn. And what I asked was the most extravagant thing she had purchased for herself in the last 90 days. Well, she had managed a hole-in-one with her phone when it dropped directly into her full coffee cup one morning. She dried it out and it did work, but she could only use it on speaker, which she did endure for quite a few months. But she got to the point where she was getting weird looks when she was out and about, uh, so she began the process of finding a replacement. And she told me that she is not a techie person, but her theory is that you buy a phone that is two models old, because if you buy the current one, you are paying a premium. And if you buy a phone that is more than two models old, well, it's unsupported as the technology is getting old. But she thinks that the sweet spot is a phone two models old and that it is peak value for money at this point. So in the end, she spent about $500 on an iPhone. Now, I've got to say I love her rationale here. Uh, good luck getting your future teenagers on board with that thinking. But for the rest of us, it is really great advice. And if Alison could retain all of the knowledge that she has today regarding money and she could go back to her 15-year-old self and start again, what would she do, whether it be the same or something different? Well, apart from the GST issue, she would do nothing dramatically different with her life. And it's great to hear that she is so happy with where she has come from and where she's headed. Now, she said that as parents, we need to keep in mind what kids really need. Now, given the fact I wanted to speak to a family with a number of children, because that's what people who listen to this had been asking me for, I wanted a few more insights. So she said that as a parent, we need to keep in mind what kids really need. Common sense tells her, as did the book Simplicity Parenting, that children benefit from a simpler world around them. And just because they have one toy car does not mean you buy them another to make a set. They are a place to family and Alison and all four kids can be there together and be involved and the kids can each take from it what they will, knowing that mum is really close by. And as a family, they do very few paid activities because they have this awesome free world outside their door and they can explore in their own way at their own development level. Now, kids are designed to explore and learn under their own steam and they don't need money put into that, she told me. So what does Alison think the biggest hurdle to becoming FI is? She said that without a doubt it was getting the mortgage paid off and once that weekly payment is gone, you are up and away. Now tied into that is the choice of property you buy. Buying a townhouse got her started and it led them to the property that they're in now. Had they have gone straight for the seven hectares as a first home, they would certainly still be tied to debt today. If they were to still have that expense, they could not save like they do. And she said that because they rely solely on Tom's income now, she sleeps easier at night knowing that there is no debt. If he were to lose his job, 
it would actually not be a catastrophe because they have lived cheaply in the past and they know that they could do it all again. And having your money under control helps you sleep far better at night. And I wondered, had Alison ever sought out the help of a professional to guide her on her journey with money? She's told me that she did have one brief encounter when her first daughter was born and they were still living in that townhouse. Her bank advised her that a chat with their wealth manager, who I guess is an authorised financial advisor, but we probably should not assume that to be true, um, that they might be useful. But Alison said that he kept talking about making financial goals like saving for a car or a holiday or some other consumer item and to set up some managed funds. But none of these goals were ones that she ever wanted. And she mentioned early retirement and he said he would like to do that, but it was unattainable. She said they were on such different wavelengths and he just did not manage to get where she was coming from. Now in other areas, she is always happy to pay for good advice, but with her budgeting and the like, it's hard to see the value that someone could add to that. Although she, like many, aiming for financial independence, she worries that she is missing something and that she doesn't know what she doesn't know, but at this point in time, she's happy to trust her own counsel. So with that in mind, how much does she engage in her financial education today and what books or blogs or podcasts would she recommend to you and I? And as I mentioned earlier, I'll link to these in my show notes at thehappysaver.com. She really likes Mr. Money Mustache because when he writes, he just tells it how it is. And leading on from that, she really likes the New Zealand Kiwi Mustachian page on Facebook because it gives her everyday encouragement that she's on the right track and it really helps her to stay focused. The forum is great for answering any questions you may have and you can also help others with their own dilemmas which is awesome. Now The Millionaire Next Door and Your Money or Your Life are worth reading as well because they make you look at the fundamentals of what you are up to. For Alison, working again is not factored into the plan at this stage but if one day she went back to work she can't see herself doing a classic 40 hour week uh, because having had five years outside the workforce, she can now see how restricting it is, and to her, it just feels completely like the wrong balance to have in life. And if she wakes up tomorrow and the weather's rubbish, well, she can stay home and respond to the day as it happens. And living this way is all about the freedom to make your own choices. And Tom, he is now 60, and he's just five years away from the retirement age of 65, which is still his intention, by the way, uh, as it was before the two of them met. But what it will look like will evolve, I'm sure. He may quit completely or he may reduce his hours down to part-time work or Alison may also take on some part-time work of her own. But that's the next chapter in the journey really and one that they are really actively planning for but will also just let evolve. Well, I am almost done but before I wrap up I have another quick message from today's sponsor and they help me bring you this podcast for nothing which is the exact amount of money Alison likes to spend on endless jars of ready-made baby food. A huge thank you to Superlife's My Future Fund for helping me bring this episode to you today. Superlife, managed by SmartShares, lets you save for any child in your life and give them the gift of a secure financial future. Visit superlife.co.nz to view the product disclosure statement and use the quick link Invest for Children to find out more. After I spoke with Alison, I actually had a long car journey ahead of me and I actually spent that time feeling really grateful that such a busy woman took the time to stop and talk to me about herself and her family. So thanks Alison for doing that and also to Tom for minding the kids while we talked. And our chat also really got me thinking that it's funny how life plays out. You can plot and you can plan and you can have your spreadsheets, but you can't get too specific about your goals because life just happens and unexpected things will always crop up. 
Independent of each other, both Alison and Tom were planning out their own lives. Both had made good, sound decisions along the way, such as paying debt off quickly when you have it and then avoid taking any more on, living on less than you earn and avoiding the marketing noise pushing you to buy more, and to save and invest steadily and consistently over a long period of time. She had a good career, a great life and her own home that she had a timeline to pay off. Tom also had a good career, a great life, and he had his financial house in order and was planning for his retirement. So both of them had similar mindsets and then they met and they merged their lives and it seems pretty seamless to me. It all feels like they both laid good, strong foundations that now let them do the things they're doing today, being a stay-at-home mum to raise a family and building a house for that family to live in, all the while still saving. So lots of cliches spring to mind here. Failure to plan equals plan to fail and save the pennies and the pounds will save themselves. But I can't help think that they are both very, very true for this cool couple. So thanks, guys, and all the very best for your future. Well, that's the end of the series, I'm afraid. Uh, I'm going to be taking a break to recharge my batteries, but I look forward to returning with season three with more money journeys of more Kiwis. Uh, Thanks again to each and every one of you who has taken the time to share your journey with money with me and with the people who listen to this. And it was as I predicted, not a scrap of negative feedback, just encouraging positive emails and comments thanking you for doing it. And thanks also to Superlife and the NZX for backing me on this. I'm so grateful for your support. Now, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please hit subscribe and it will automatically update in your podcast app when my new series begins. And I would also love it if you could leave me a five-star review in iTunes and share it with your friends. If you want to get in touch to say hello or you have a journey that you think others could learn from, you can find me at thehappysaver.com. And finally, I would love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and help me continue to help others be better with money. So thanks for listening. Until next time, happy saving. Mm